in old San Juan late last night after he used Facebook to say he'll step down a week from tomorrow. The island's Justice Secretary, Wanda Vasquez, is set to take the job, becoming Puerto Rico's second-ever female governor. I'm Matt Small. Tunisian President Baji Kaid Isebsi has died. The Office of the Presidency said the veteran politician passed away Thursday. Least late last month, he had been hospitalized for a severe illness. Isebsi was Tunisia's first democratically elected president. This is VOA News. Former special counsel Robert Mueller spoke to members of Congress Wednesday. He said his probe into Russian interference in the last presidential election did not exonerate U.S. President Donald Trump of allegedly trying to thwart the investigation. VOA's Mike O'Sullivan reports. The former special counsel warned of Russian attempts to sway the election in favor of Donald Trump through social media and WikiLeaks data breaches. First, our investigation found that the Russian government interfered in our election in sweeping and systematic fashion. Second, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Mueller says investigators decided the president could not be charged for possible offenses as long as he's in office, based on long-standing Justice Department policy. Trump calls the investigation a witch hunt, and he and many supporters are skeptical that the Russians swayed the election. Mike O'Sullivan, VOA News, Los Angeles. The U.S. government intends to resume capital punishment after a 16-year hiatus. The Justice Department announced on Thursday there are plans to execute five death row inmates convicted of murder later this year. More than half of the 50 U.S. states have capital punishment laws. The United States is the only Western country where executions still take place. The AFP cites a United Nations report released Thursday that says nearly 700 people in the Democratic Republic of Congo were victims of summary and extrajudicial executions this year. The report says a third were carried out by security forces. As the second heat wave of the summer bakes the European continent, tourists and residents alike in Paris, France, are bracing for record temperatures. The Paris area could be as hot as 42 degrees Celsius Thursday as a result of hot, dry air coming from northern Africa that's trapped between cold, stormy systems. Air conditioning can be rare in temperate Europe, which is why one American tourist told the AP she's grateful she lucked out with her accommodations. When we planned Paris, we did not expect this at all. I'm so glad that we booked Airbnb and had air conditioning available because I know some other people didn't get that. But we've had such a good time. The Parisians have been so accommodating. We've been getting water wherever we go. Tourists clustered around fountains in Paris, like at Trocadero's, where uh, there are huge jets and a large pool-like splashing area. We have more international headlines for you on voanews.com. You can go there for the very latest. I'm Liz Pelka, VOA News. This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Good evening and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehis Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on Africa News Tonight... Asebsi was a unique president during a very unique time in Tunisia's history. He put the country ahead of his party and ahead of his own political interests. That's Sarah Yerkes, a fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, talking about the implications of the death of the Tunisian president. Details coming up also. Democracy activists in Sudan marched today in support of the opposition coalition. And the charity action against hunger today demanded that Islamic extremists release six of its workers held hostage in northern Nigeria. We'll have these stories and more ahead on African News tonight. Tunisian President Baji Saeed Essebsi has died at the age of 92. 
as Sepsi was a major player in Tunisia's transition to democracy since 2011 following the overthrow of autocrat Zine El Abdin Ben Ali, which sparked the Arab Spring in Egypt and Libya. VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shanawi spoke with Sarah Yerkes, a fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, about the implications of Hesepsi's death on Tunisian political life as the country navigates a difficult period. Luckily, the Tunisian constitution has a pretty clear process for transition of power. Already we've seen the Speaker of the Parliament, Mohamed Anasur, saying that he will take over according to the constitution. The problem is that the constitution requires that there must be new elections within 90 days, which would leave the country about a couple of weeks short before already scheduled presidential elections. So there will be some challenge of what will happen in that time, and will they be able to pull off elections earlier than they had scheduled them? Asipsi struck a conciliatory tone using his ability to compromise in fulfilling his promise to be a president for all Tunisians. Would any successor of Sipsi be able to do the same? Sipsi was a unique president during a very unique time in Tunisia's history. He put the country ahead of his party and ahead of his own political interests in order to keep the transition on track. It's not clear that the person who follows him will even be in that same position or be able to achieve such a goal. We'll see what happens when the presidential elections happen later this year, but he is certainly someone who'll take away that legacy of consensus and of someone who was able to keep the country on track during the transition. Any names or candidates to be successors of him? We don't know yet. The way that the Tunisian uh, political system, the elections calendar works, candidates were not scheduled to announce themselves until the end of August. There has been some speculation over different candidates. We really don't know who that will be yet. We could see the Prime Minister Yusuf Shahid become one of the candidates. We could see someone from Anahta become one of the candidates. We don't know yet who that person will be. Asepsi's death comes as Tunisia is navigating a difficult political period. Asepsi's party, Nada Tunis, an alternative to political Islamist movements such as Anahda is fractured already. Would Asipsi's passing change the political scene in Tunisia? Unfortunately, I think that his passing will lead to the end of the Nida Tunis party. The party is already tremendously fragmented. We've seen right now it really has two different branches, one that's led by his son. I'm not sure that his son is going to actually be able to maintain power without the protection of his father to help him. So we'll see again what happens when these elections take place later this year. But the party is already split into so many factions, with a lot of people defecting to the prime minister's new party, Tayatunis. I think that that party is likely to do better than Nida, and Nida will prob- this may be Nida's last elections. How about the Nahda movement? I think Nahda will do very well. I think we've seen that the head of Nahda, Sheikh Rashid Ganoushi, announced he will be running for parliament. This will be his first time in elected office. He's running in the Tunis 1 district. So he will likely play a big role. There's speculation he might try to be either prime minister or speaker of parliament, in which case he would have a good bit of power. So there will certainly be new political dynamics in the next elections. That would have happened regardless of the president's passing, but the president's passing does set the Nita Tunis party into a bit of a conundrum. That was Sarah Yerkes at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She spoke with VOA's Mohamed El Shinawi. Supporters of Sudan's democracy movement marched today in Khartoum to demand that experts, not political parties, make up a transitional government agreed to with the Transitional Military Council a week ago. The demonstrations came a day after the council said it thwarted another coup attempt overnight and arrested senior military officers. A senior member of the Sudanese Professionals Association, a leading part of the protest movement, says marchers want the ideals of the revolution that led to former President Omar al-Bashir's ouster to be upheld. The demonstration began as Sudan's main protest group, the Force for the Declaration of Freedom and Change, said it had reached an agreement with rebels who had opposed a power-sharing deal with the Transitional Military Council. The FDFC said the rebels agreed during meetings in Ethiopia that the transitional government would be responsible for achieving peace. Sudan's military and opposition coalition last week signed a power 
power-sharing deal on a three-year transitional government before elections. The charity action against hunger today demanded that Islamic extremists release six of its workers who have been held hostage for a week. Today, the kidnappers released a video showing the French charity's female staff member and her five male colleagues. The woman said uh, they had been kidnapped and they did not know where they were being held. The six were kidnapped a week ago near the border with Niger in northern Nigeria. Reuters news agency said the kidnappers were with a group called the Islamic State of West Africa. That group has kidnapped and murdered aid workers in the past. Northeastern Nigeria has been racked by extremist violence for a decade since the rise of the Boko Haram militant group. The Islamic State group is believed to be an offshoot of Boko Haram. Khan has gradually returned to Banjul following spontaneous protest marches in several towns and communities in the Gambia. The protests at times turned violent with property destroyed, a police station vandalized, and the home of a police superintendent burned to the ground by the protesters. This followed the death of a Sierra Leonean national, Osman Darbo. The protesters allege he was tortured by police. The police say Darbo was an asthmatic patient and his death is being investigated. Reporter Panderambai has more. Shots were fired as a police superintendent commanded officers to repel protesters storming the Vigilo police station on Wednesday. Vigilo is on the west coast of the Gambia, about 20 kilometers from the capital Banjul. The death of a Serenodian national sparked protest marches across the greater Banjul area. Usman Dabo, a local shop owner, was held by the police on suspicion of possessing stolen goods. He was released on bail but died a few days later. The protesters allege he was tortured while in custody. Shop owner Sergio Fati was among the protesters. The police brutality happening here. That is what we want to expose to the whole world, the Gambian population, to know that people are arrested, detained, and killed under police custody. And it has to stop. We need justice. The police say they are investigating the matter and indicated Davos' death was related to his asthma. The anti-crime unit has been linked to past allegations of abuse of detainees. A Gambian rapper, Ali Cham, says he was malhandled last year when police arrested him during a raid. He was later charged with assault. A few weeks ago, university student Keba Seka was stabbed to death by a police officer during a drug raid. The suspected officer fled but was later arrested and charged with murder. The country's commission of inquiry has accused the current commander of the anti-crime unit, Gurgimbu, of being involved in the murder of 14 unarmed students and a journalist during a protest march in 2000. The government of former President Yaya Jame, however, said they could not be prosecuted. The protest spread across the towns of Serekunda and Bakote. The police station in Bakote was vandalized and protesters freed those detained there. The anti-crime unit deputy commander, Usman So, unsuccessfully tried to engage the protesters into a dialogue. We have no problem with people coming to seek uh, information from us. We'll give you what you want. But definitely we don't want anything to go violence. We don't want anybody to vandalize anybody's property. We don't want anybody to insult somebody or assault anybody. Sehumbalo is a deputy youth advisor for President Adam Abaro. Mbalo tells BOA the protesters went beyond vandalizing the backwater station. It is unwarranted and definitely unfortunate for some people to go on vandalizing cars, burning shops, looting, even looting, looting cars that, that are passing. A lady has just reported to us that she was passing, an innocent lady who doesn't know anything what is happening around the Senegambia area. Her car glass was wind down. They took her cell phone. That is banditry. We don't need a society like this. Our democracy is acting for civility, for peace and tranquility. Mbalo says the borough administration respects human rights and would get to the bottom of Davos' case. 
the police had to call for reinforcements. Troops with the economic community of West African states mission in the Gambia came to their rescue. Some members of the Gambian army were also seen at the station. One of them was Yankuba Drame, the deputy chief of defense staff who called for peace. He warned the protesters about the dangers of conflict. We are talking out of experience. We have seen the repercussions of conflict. Conflict is not in our collective best interest. Virtually every individual, including myself, directly or indirectly, will be a loser or a victim. And who suffers when there's a conflict? We, the Gambians. Demonstrations also were reported in Brikama, where protesters accused the chairman of the municipality of incompetence. More than 30 protesters reportedly were arrested in Brikama and have been granted bail. For VOA Africa, this is pandering by reporting. Seventeen past the hour, you were listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. At least 116 migrants are missing off the Libya coast today after their wooden boat capsized. A Libyan Coast Guard spokesman says Coast Guard vessels and local fishermen rescued at least 132 people off the coast of Comas, a town east of the capital Tripoli. Survivors told the Coast Guard there had been more than 200 migrants on the boat. Libya has become the key jumping-off point for migrants and refugees in Africa and the Middle East, hoping to reach Europe by crossing the Mediterranean. However, the sea crossing is dangerous, especially for the overpacked and poorly equipped vessels the migrants use. In the past few years, the European Union has worked with Libya to prevent migrants from making the dangerous journey. But rights groups say that it has left thousands of migrants at the mercy of traffickers or confined in squalid detention centers. As part of Zimbabwe's fight against government corruption, the tourism minister has been taken into custody for questioning by the anti-corruption agency. Reporter Kudzaizen Awashi has more. The newly appointed Zimbabwe Anti-Corruption Commission said Thursday it has taken Priska Mufumira in for questioning. The current tourism minister is the former minister of public services, labor and social welfare, which also oversees the National Social Security Authority. NASA is a pension management entity that manages civil services pensions. The head of the Anti-Corruption Commission, Judge Lois Matanda Moyo, says there has been no formal arrest. We've just taken in Chris Kamfumira for questioning, not notice yet. It may culminate into an arrest, but not for now. We are still recording statements. Mupumira's detention comes weeks after the youth wing of the ruling ZANU-PF called for action against a list of officials it says are corrupt. Louis Matutu is the head of the youth wing. He says, we want clarity on the issue of Priska Mupumira. We heard she left NASA after gobbling its funds. Matutu says the group demands immediate answers so that members can regain the confidence they have lost in the government. The Anti-Corruption Commission cannot comment on the questioning since it's an ongoing investigation. Local news media report Mufumira is being questioned about suspected corruption at the National Social Security Authority. Moyo came into her role as the top craft fighter after her predecessor resigned with fewer than five high-profile convictions in a country that ranks among the most corrupt nations in the 2018 Transparency International Corruption Index. Early this month, Moyo hinted that the commission will be taking tough cases. Our strategy is to have Zach dealing with cases involving high-level corruption and cases involving high-profile members of society. Let me advise the nation that since my appointment, Zaki has received 38 cases of corruption, of which 10 are high-profile in nature. Political analyst Rashid Mukundu says the questioning of a sitting minister is a welcome event in the fight against corruption. He, however, has reservations. 
I think it's a good starting point by President Emerson Munangagwa. That is to clean up the corruption within the government and it will clearly send a message. But the key issue is that many times people are arrested and those cases simply fall flat on their faces. Mukundu says Zimbabwe's anti-corruption mechanism has been weak in the past because investigators lacked the independence, skill and capacity to build cases against high-ranking officials. He says, however, the questioning of a sitting minister sends a clear message to would-be corrupt public officials that they may also be arrested. The Zimbabwe Anti-Corruption Commission says it will update the public when there are any developments regarding the Mupumira case. For VOA, this is Kudzai Zinawashi from Harare. As Ghana's capital Accra expands, green spaces have diminished and fast food is starting to become a norm. However, agriculturalist Lauren Goodwin wants to ensure that children understand where their food comes from and how to grow it themselves. Stacey Knott reports from Accra. Tucked away in one of Accra's few green spaces, children are spending their school holiday learning about ethical agriculture and healthy living. Ghana, like many nations across the world, is seeing a rise in fast food consumption and the associated health risks. Fried local street food and fast food restaurants are common sites throughout the capital. Lauren Goodwin, founder of the Under the Mango Tree Camp, says she sees people, especially in cities, becoming disconnected from their food source. I know that children need to be a part of this. This can't be a conversation that we just keep for adults. It can't be. You know, we're growing and we have our young people that are coming up. It is so important for them to be exposed to this thing. They need to know how food grows. This month, the children have been learning about all aspects of ethical agriculture, from composting to creating natural pesticides. The camp is held at a park where the children, like Bjorn Brinkman, have been able to plant herbs and vegetables. I have been planting, germinating, sowing, um, harvesting, and also sometimes we tasted the herbs, and sometimes we brought um, some, some vegetables home. Goodwin, who immigrated from the United States to Ghana, worries about the health impact poor diets have on black communities. Educating children about the power of plants will also empower their families and eventually the wider community, she says. Parents say the camp is both informative and fun for their children. They come home from the day camp eager to share their new knowledge, says one mother, Aziza Atta. I think physically it's great, it's socially it's great um, in terms of their understanding of nature and how things work and how things have a source and there's a cycle and you, know, you need to plant something and then it grows and then you harvest it and this is how you do it and you, know, you don't just go to the supermarket and buy things, it actually comes, that, that thinking process. Goodwin hopes the seeds the camp plants today will inspire the youngsters to lead the movement for healthy food and ethical agriculture in Ghana. Stacey Knott for VOA News, Accra. As part of a sweeping reforms, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed appointed Maaza Ashinafi to be the first woman to lead the country's Supreme Court. This charismatic lawyer has built a career advocating for women. VOA Salem Salomon has this profile. Maaza Ashinafi made a name for herself fighting for women's rights in Ethiopia. Her most famous case involved a 14-year-old girl who was kidnapped by a man trying to force her into child marriage, a traditional practice in some parts of Ethiopia. The girl shot and killed her abductor, but was cleared of charges due to Maaza's work. The incident was dramatized in an award-winning film, Difret. Maaza is now Chief Justice of Ethiopia's Supreme Court, the first woman ever appointed, and will remain focused on women's rights and economic empowerment. For example, in Ethiopia there is no law, independent law on violence against women. We just have few provisions in the criminal code. So going forward, I think we need to, to have a comprehensive law that addresses issues of violence against women and law. 
Maaza founded the Ethiopian Women Lawyers Association to help women who've been sexually harassed or victims of intimate partner violence. She says she wants to restore the people trust in the nation's legal system, which has been criticized for its slow response to crime. The career lawyer wants Ethiopians to see the courts are able to hold everyone to account, including those in power. Maaza seems to have an ally in Ethiopia's young, reform-minded Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed. Everyone should get equal treatment in the face of the law. It should never be used as a tool for revenge. When we respect the rule of law, it should be in accordance to that. Maaza hopes her understanding of Ethiopia's culture and people will be an asset in her position as she seeks solutions to seemingly intractable problems. If under my leadership we manage to cement the independence of the judiciary in Ethiopia, this is not going to change the history of the last 40 years. This is going to change the history of the last 3,000 years of uh, you know, judicial administration in Ethiopia. Salem Solomon, VOA News, Washington. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehi in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. For listeners on VOA's Nairobi FM station, please stay tuned for the Swahili Evening News coming up at 16.30 UTC. For all other listeners, please stay tuned to the sunny side of sports. Tune in again at 1800 UTC for another edition of African News Tonight. On behalf of our producer, Bill Workinger, and our engineer, Aidan Ochko, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. Hello, I'm Douglas Simpoga, host of VOA's Reporters Roundtable. Join us every Thursday as we discuss important African topics and events. I'll have a panel of African journalists and expert guests to discuss the topic at hand. We take a deeper look at important after news topics. That's Reporters Roundtable every Thursday at 1730 UTC, right here on VOA Africa. The Science Edition of Press Conference USA celebrates the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, considered one of the greatest achievements in human history. NASA's chief historian, William Barry, joins host Rick Pantaleo to discuss how the space agency was able to meet President John F. Kennedy's challenge of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth before the end of the 1960s. Listen Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning in to the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America. Stand up! Stand up! Stand up! Stand up! Friends, we can all listen to the sunny side of sports. Great show, bro. This is Sunny Side of Sports. Right here on The Voice of America. Voice of America! This is VOA's Sonny Young in Washington. Welcome to the sunny side of sports. As I reported on Wednesday's show... The countdown is officially on for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, Japan. Wednesday marked one year to the opening ceremony for the Tokyo Games. Kenya, like many other countries, is stepping up its preparations for the Tokyo Olympics. From the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, Ruben Chama reports. The National Olympics Committee of Kenya named sports veteran Waithaka Kioni as the country's chief of mission for the Games to be held in Tokyo, Japan in August next year. 
Kioni, a long-serving volleyball administrator, promised to redeem the country's tainted image in the wake of graft charges facing former senior officials accused of misappropriating about half a million dollars during the last Olympic Games. As we move towards Tokyo 2020, we are aware there will be very many challenges, particularly considering what happened at the last Olympics, Rio 2016, while our threats performed very well, the management committee performed dismally, and as a consequence, the image and credibility of the National Olympic Committee of Kenya was badly dented and damaged. Kenyans celebrated with a colorful event in Nairobi Wednesday to mark the one-year countdown before the start of the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games. In the 2016 Rio Games, Kenya won six gold medals, six silvers and one bronze, all in the track and field. But the sterling performance was overshadowed by allegations of corruption among team officials and government officials. Former marathon world record holder Paul Terrigat is the president of the National Olympic Committee of Kenya, or NOC, and a member of the International Olympic Committee. Today marks exactly one year away before the start of this biggest sports extravaganza. As a National Olympic Committee, we have no doubt about our readiness to represent Team Kenya to this novel duty for our nation. Our sports people remain the best anywhere. And all they need is to be facilitated to prepare and to go to do what they know best. That is to bring us medals. The Kenya Olympic team is the most successful team in Africa on medal count with 103 medals to its credit ahead of South Africa and Ethiopia at 86 and 54 medals respectively. Now Kenyan athletes in more than 20 sporting events will start competing to qualify for the Tokyo Olympics over the next few months. The host, Japan, has promised to make it a high-tech, environmentally friendly event. Mitsuhiro Kobayashi is with the Embassy of Japan in Kenya. As all sports lovers know, the first Summer Olympics ever held in Asia was hosted by Japan in 1964. There were Tokyo Olympic Games, and it is at these Games that Kenya won its first ever Olympic medal. It is an honor to meet young Kenyan athletes who are currently working hard as they prepare to try and qualify for the Tokyo 2020 Olympic and the Paralympic Games. Agnes Oluoch is the president of Kenya National Paralympics. We started this event at the embassy, which was very okay. And we also saw the inclusivity that was there between the Olympic and the Paralympics. It was really good and I really enjoyed and we are ready to start kickoff for Tokyo. The Kenyan team has settled for Japan's city of Kurume to host its training camp ahead of the sporting extravaganza. For the sunny side of sports, this is Ruben Chama in Nairobi. Hello sports fans, this is Paul Tergat, marathon champion from Kenya. You are listening to the sunny side of sports on the Voice of America. Voice of America! As Ruben Chama reported, Olympic host Japan is promising a high-tech and environmentally friendly sports extravaganza next year. Well, on the environmental front, the 5,000 medals that will be awarded at the Games and Paralympics have been made entirely from recycled consumer devices. Unveiled this week, they are the first sustainable Olympic medals and they're designed to resemble polished stones. The 2020 medals represent the contributions of Japanese citizens who were asked to recycle their cell phones and small devices and appliances more than two years ago. Meanwhile, a top official of the Nigeria Wrestling Federation says the country's athletes are working hard to win medals at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and next month's All-Africa Games in Rabat, Morocco. Daniel Igali is the president of the Nigeria Wrestling Federation. 
19 years ago, representing Canada, Daniel won a gold medal in the 69-kilogram lightweight division at the Sydney Olympics. In an interview with Iron Mike Mbonye, Igali talked about preparations by Nigerian wrestlers. We've been in camp for a couple of weeks now, and, and the athletes, uh, in my view, are in good spirits. Uh, but if you ask me if it's ideal, of course it's not. I mean, if you are going to prepare for the Africa Games, uh, you need more than five weeks to prepare. We've been training before that uh, in our different uh, places of uh, of uh, abode, and we are quite aware of uh, the programs the athletes have undergone over the past few months. So I would I would say that uh, preparations are ongoing. How are you preparing for the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games and the prospects of winning medals for Nigeria from that particular game? All these preparations are going to the past of the Tokyo Tokyo Olympics. Um, the Africa Games is not completely divorced from the Tokyo Tokyo Olympics. I mean, we're not going to have a separate preparation for it. Uh, right after the Africa Games, we also have the World Championships in Kazakhstan. And we're open even in November to have some of our athletes, especially our Olympic hopefuls, take part in some competitions in North America. Um, and early in the year, in January, too, we're trying to get them a couple of tournaments before we get into some of the Olympic qualifiers. We have to gain early, early January. So... This also forms part of our preparations for the Olympics. Do you have challenges preparing for these major events and tournaments? And does Nigeria have the prospect of another Daniel Egali winning a gold medal in wrestling, be it from the Olympic Games, All African Games, and the World Championship? You know, talents abound in Nigeria. Uh, I want those talents, and uh, it's uh, the handiwork of preparation, uh, the handiwork of a system that is uh, solid, uh, if I can call it that way, in Canada that was able to actually bring out the, the potential, the, the talent, and harness it to a goal now. Uh, that being said, um, we, we have issues. We always have issues with every sport. Uh, we have issues of uh, organization. We have issues of uh, taking care of our athletes, of remuneration. Uh, those things are there, but they're not, they're not only... Uh, issues that affect Nigeria, they affect a lot of other countries. It's how we address them that is the, the bigger problem. I would say that there are a lot of talents. Whether we are going to win Olympic gold medals uh, is what I can't say now because of the situation. So we have, we have quite a number of talents in Nigeria, but I, I, I think uh, the challenge is on how we can address it. And addressing it requires resources, resources to the traditions, resources to the administrators of sports, not on national level, but also at the state and local government levels. And I think once we're able to do that properly, winning medals at the Olympics, at the World Championships, at the Commonwealth, and Africa will be something we can be doing very consistently. That's Daniel Igali, 2000 Olympic champion and president of the Nigeria Wrestling Federation. And Daniel spoke with Iron Mike Mbonye on the telephone from Yenagoa, Nigeria. Hi, I'm Helen Maroulis, Olympic champion for Team USA, and you're listening to the Sunny Side of Sports on The Voice of America. Just ahead, my VOA colleague Jim Stevenson will join us with a spicy package of golf, basketball, and Olympic news. The Tokyo Olympics open one year from now, and if you go, you may see the mascot robots Miratawa and Sumiti. Other robots will be there, too, developed by Toyota Moto Corporation and Panasonic. They will have more practical uses, like assisting visitors in wheelchairs or helping staff manage the games. 
Gon Yamazaki is a Japanese child who saw some up close. I got stuck up. I was impressed that the robot can do a high five and shake hands. Tokyo is in fact busy designing an entire robotic village in Tokyo's Odaiba district, where organizers say robots will be helping hundreds of thousands of visitors carry their luggage, translate difficult sentences, or even hail a taxi. The Tokyo Olympics run from July 24th through August 9th, 2020. Japanese rising basketball star Ri Hachimura is heading to the United States to play in the National Basketball Association. He's already reaping financial rewards, announcing a multi-year global partnership with Nissan Foods Holdings in Tokyo. I'm very happy to see my face on the package. It's cool that I feel like I'm collaborating with Cup Noodle. Hachimura became the first player from Japan to be chosen in the first round of the NBA draft, taken with a number nine overall pick by the rebuilding Washington Wizards. The team's new power forward says he hopes he will help boost the sport in his native Japan. After the NBA draft, I've been sounded out by a lot of media, and people recognize me more than before, not only in Japan, but also in the United States. I think it's a good thing for Japanese basketball to draw people's attention. I'm happy about that because I know that the Japanese Basketball Association has been trying their best as well to draw people's attention to basketball. I'm also happy that a big company like Nissan decided to be my sponsor. The two-meter, three-tall, 106-kilo Hachimura is currently in Japan after participating in the 2019 NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. He's excited to see basketball grow while watching other sports. If I sum up my feelings right now in a few words, it will be, I'm looking forward to it very much. The World Cup is coming soon before the NBA season. So I would like to see how well the Japanese team can do against all these teams such as the United States and China. Hachimura also has his sights set on next year's Tokyo Olympics. I have been dreaming of playing at the Tokyo Olympics and Japan's basketball team qualified for the Olympics. So it will be a good chance for me. I'm also grateful for Nissan's support. The son of a Japanese mother and a father from Benin, Hachimura is the latest Japanese of mixed race to make a splash in the sporting world, following women's tennis player Naomi Osaka and Major League Baseball's Yu Darvish, who pitches for the Chicago Cubs. This is huge for me, obviously, major championship. Shane Lowry of Ireland has added his name to the illustrious list of winners, carved into the base of the Claret Jug, as he held his lead through the final round of the Open, golf's final major of the year. I knew today that I was going to have to fight to the very end, and I, I did. I didn't let myself, you know, I said I let, I let myself think about it on 17 and enjoy it, but I still, you know, you're still hitting shots and you're links golf, bunkers, rough, all sorts can happen out there, so you kind of, I let myself really, really enjoy it going down 18, but before that, I was I was really just fighting till the end. Lowry began the day with a four-shot advantage over Tommy Fleetwood of England at Portrush in Northern Ireland. Lowry's lead slowly grew to six shots by the end as the entire field braved tough weather. When I had it kind of around the turn, have a, had a look at a few leaderboards and seeing everybody else was struggling. I mean, it was so hard out there, especially God, when that big shower came in on the eighth. Um, it was just, you know, the ninth tee shot was just like put the ball down and hope for the best because it was just, it was incredible the rain that was coming down. Lowry felt assured he would win as the number of remaining holes grew smaller. Even though I bogeyed 14, I thought I had the last five holes incredibly well and I felt incredibly good um, I felt like I was I was going to do it especially obviously after 14 when Tommy met double I met bogey but I went five ahead before the play behind every great golfer is a caddy you know I kept on telling him how nervous I was how scared I was <laughs> how much I didn't want to mess it up <laughs> um, he was great at keeping me in the moment today Brian Martin began carrying Lowry's bag less than a year ago golf's a weird sport and you never know what's around the corner and that's why you always kind of need to remind yourself and you need to have the people there to remind you that you need to just fight through the bad times. And Irish fan support helped him too. It's funny, I, I sometimes struggle to play in front of a home crowd and have done in the past, but I mean, not over the last few days, I've just I played 
lovely, so it was, yeah, it's obviously very nice. Port Rush has hosted the only two Open Championships outside of England and Scotland in the tournament's 148-year history. The first time was in 1961, and Lowry feels it will be less than 58 years before the Open returns to Northern Ireland. This is my eighth Open Championship. It was the best one I've ever played in. Um, you know, the way it was ran, the golf course, everybody was raving about the golf course, how good it was. So I'd be very surprised if it's not back here in the next 10 years. Lowry joins an impressive group of Irish major champions. We're very lucky Irish golfers. People people might say there's not enough Irish golfers on tour, but look at the standard of Irish golfers we have. Uh, you know, Rory McIlroy is arguably one of, you know, he is one of the best players in the world, if not the best on his day. Um, G-Mac, I think, is getting a struck back. And uh, the careers that Paddy and, and Darren and, and those guys have had is just incredible. Now, Lowry has something in common with Padraig Harrington. Like, you go into Paddy's house and his claret yoga is sitting there on the kitchen table and I'm going to have one on my kitchen table now as well. So I said that to him. That was, that's going to be quite nice. And he has cherished photos as champion with his daughter, Iris. Asher, look, that's, that means everything, doesn't it? Those, those pictures. While Iris is only two, Lowry hopes for more photo ops with her in the coming years. Look, I'm going to be coming back of another 27 Opens to play in. So... <laughs> She's going to be nearly 30 when I play my last one, (laughs) which is, that's going to be nice. Um. And thanks to my VOA colleague, Jim Stevenson, for that spicy sports package. I'm Sonny Young, and you're listening to the sunny side of sports on The Voice of America. Let's take a short break now for these VOA programming announcements. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of Press Conference USA, VOA's newsmaker interview program. Join us each Saturday and Sunday when we talk with authors, analysts, and policymakers who provide fresh insight on topics ranging from U.S. politics and foreign policy to science, culture, and global health. You can listen to Press Conference USA on the radio or online at voanews.com PCUSA. While you're visiting our website, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. Just send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voa or on Twitter at voa. That's Press Conference USA every Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Want to relax, unwind, or charge up? Then listen to Music Time in Africa this weekend. It'll do all that for you and more. I'm Heather Maxwell. I know good music. And Africa is my passion. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for one hour of commercial-free, pan-African music of the highest caliber. You get great music, music news, and amazing artist interviews from rising stars to superstars. This listen will take you places, so do it. Join me for Music Time in Africa, your weekend destination. Thanks, Heather. We look forward to your next Music Time in Africa show. And the sunny side of sports remembers Heather's predecessor, the late, great Leo Sarkeesian. I'm broadcasting right now from Studio 22 at our Voice of America headquarters in Washington, D.C., right next door in Studio 23. That studio is dedicated to the legendary music man Leo Sarkeesian, who died last year at the age of 97. And a little VOA history for you. Leo launched Music Time in Africa way back in 1965, making it the VOA's longest-running English radio program. Leo Sarkeesian, the music man, still lives right here at our VOA headquarters with the Studio 23 dedication. 
Newly crowned African football champion Algeria is the biggest mover in the July FIFA rankings. But the team Algeria beat in the Nations Cup final, Senegal, remains number one on the continent. In the rankings released Thursday, the Desert Foxes of Algeria rose 28 places to number 40 overall. The Algerians also were the biggest mover by points. They were up 117 ranking points from the June FIFA rankings. And after being ranked 12th in Africa by FIFA in June, the Algerians are now 4th on the continent. Senegal, which lost 1-0 to Algeria in the Nations Cup final July 19th in Cairo, remains number one in Africa and 20th overall. The Carthage Eagles of Tunisia are second in Africa and 29th overall. And another flock of eagles, the Super Eagles of Nigeria, they're third in Africa and 30th overall. The Desert Foxes of Algeria, as I mentioned, are fourth in Africa and rounding out the top 10 in Africa, according to FIFA, we have Morocco, Egypt, Ghana, Cameroon, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Ivory Coast. Taking a look at the very top of the July FIFA rankings, Belgium is number one overall, followed by South American champion Brazil, which is only 20 ranking points behind the Belgians. France is ranked third, followed by England and Uruguay. More African football news. The Zimbabwe Football Association, ZIFA, says Sunday Chizamga has resigned as the national team's head coach. The 67-year-old Chizamga guided the Warriors of Zimbabwe at the recent Africa Cup of Nations tournament in Egypt. Zimbabwe lost to host Egypt 1-0 in their opening match, drew one all with Uganda, and then lost to the Democratic Republic of Congo 4-0. So the Warriors were not able to advance out of the group stage in Egypt. Colombian cyclist Nairo Quintana won Thursday's 18th stage of the Tour de France. It was a 208-kilometer mountain stage, and Quintana attacked about three kilometers from the finish line to win the stage. In the overall general classification standings, a local favorite, Frenchman Julien Alaphilippe, he holds the yellow jersey given, given to the top rider in the Tour de France. Now, right now, another Colombian is within striking distance of Alaphilippe, Egon Bernal of Colombia, about a minute and a half behind Alaphilippe after 18 stages of the Tour de France. We have three stages left in the world's greatest cycling race. It will end on Sunday in Paris. But right now we have two mountain stages left and then a flat stage. So the Tour de France... No clear winner at this point. And that wraps up the July 25th edition of the Sunny Side of Sports. Thanks to Voice of America producer Bill Workinger. Thanks also to VOA engineer Nelson Lopez. And thank you for tuning in. I'm VOA Sonny Young in Washington, and that's the Sunny Side of Sports. The Voice of America's flagship global news program, International Edition, brings you an in-depth look at the biggest stories of the day. Nobody covers the world more comprehensively than VOA. We have hundreds of reporters gathering the news and the views of the most seasoned experts on international issues. Tune in Monday through Friday at 17 UTC and 2230 UTC. We're also available online at voanews.com. 
The Science Edition of Press Conference USA celebrates the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, considered one of the greatest achievements in human history. NASA's Chief Historian William Barry joins host Rick Pantaleo to discuss how the space agency was able to meet President John F. Kennedy's challenge of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth before the end of the 1960s. Listen Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Hello, Africa. I'm James Butte, host of VOA's Daybreak Africa. When news breaks, VOA Africa is there, bringing you the news as it happens. Listen to Daybreak Africa Monday through Friday at 3, 4, 5, and 6 hours UTC. And our 5 minutes newscast come to you at the top of each hour. VOA Africa, your trusted source of information. Are you suffering from heartache? No problem. We've got the cure for you. African beat can soothe your heartache with its awesome tunes from the African continent. So join me, David Vandy, Mondays through Fridays at 0900 and 2000 Universal Time for a healing journey. I guarantee it. This is Science in a Minute. Among the top risk factors for heart disease is obesity. The most common method to determine obesity is by a person's body mass index or BMI score. A new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association's JAMA Network Open suggests medical professionals not only look at a person's BMI score, but also body shape. Study authors found evidence that people with a normal BMI can still be at risk for cardiovascular disease, early death, and other obesity-related health issues if they also have an excess accumulation of fat around their midsection, something also referred to as central obesity. In other words, maintaining normal weight but having a large waist size could still spell health trouble. The study also suggests that some people, especially athletes, with a high BMI score can still be in excellent health because the bulk of their weight is muscle. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Hello, thank you for listening to Border Crossings with Larry London. This month, Border Crossings is giving away a really cool Voice of America t-shirt. If you want to win one of these awesome shirts, all you have to do is make a song request for our show. I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it, yeah. Tune into Border Crossings at 1500 Universal Time every weekday in August for your chance to win. The Voice of America's flagship global news program, International Edition, brings you an in-depth look at the biggest stories of the day. Nobody covers the world more comprehensively than VOA. We have hundreds of reporters gathering the news and the views of the most seasoned experts on international issues. Tune in Monday through Friday at 17 UTC and 2230 UTC. We're also available online at voanews.com. The economic and political turmoil in Venezuela continues, despite international efforts to support interim president Juan Guaido against strongman Nicolas Maduro. Host Carol Castiel discusses the Venezuela turmoil with Eric Farnsworth, vice president of the Council of the Americas and the America Society, and Mark Firestein, former National Security Council director of Western Hemisphere Affairs. Listen this Saturday and Sunday on Encounter. We are always glad to have our listeners throughout Africa tuning in to our newscast covering Africa News. Tune in on the top of each hour 24-7. VOA is your trusted source of news and information. This is VOA News. I'm Liz Palka. North Korea fired two missiles off its east coast Thursday. The launch comes as Pyongyang complains about upcoming U.S.-South Korean military exercises. While analysts say the launch probably will not derail nuclear talks, it underscores the United States' inability to move those talks forward. VOA's Bill Gallo reports from Seoul. The missiles launched Thursday appear to be short-range. 
possibly similar to those North Korea launched in May. That launch didn't derail nuclear talks. And Seoul-based analyst Bong Yong-shik says the latest one probably will not either. It is another attempt by North Korean authorities to put additional pressure on Washington uh, prior to actual negotiations to set the agenda for working level negotiations on denuclearization. South Korea has said it will go ahead with planned joint military exercises with the United States, despite North Korean objections. Washington and Seoul have already scaled back those exercises. But so far, that is not good enough for North Korea. Bill Gallo, VOA News, Seoul. This launch comes less than a month after President Trump met Kim at the demilitarized zone, a meeting many White House officials described as a possible game changer. Since then, North Korea has failed to show up for working level talks. Instead, Kim this week posed next to a submarine, apparently capable of handling nuclear tipped missiles. <laughs> Tunisian Parliament Speaker Mohamed Enakor was sworn in as interim president on Thursday. His swearing-in was hours after President Baji Kaid Essebsi's death. Essebsi helped guide the North African country's transition to democracy after the 2011 revolution. This is VOA News. U.S. President Donald Trump celebrated after special counsel Robert Mueller's appearance on Capitol Hill Wednesday, calling it a very good day for himself and fellow Republicans. Mueller and 